Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I had a great conversation with Corey Hofstein, founder and CIO of Newfound Research and author of the recent research paper, Liquidity Cascades, The Coordinated Risk of Uncoordinated Market Participants. Corey discusses the changes in market structure over the past 10 years, which include massive Federal Reserve intervention, ultra-low interest rates, risk-taking and reaching for yield, the trend in passive investing, and the increased use of options and derivatives. In isolation, each of these is important, but when looked at as a collective set of drivers of the markets and investor behavior, one can start to see how the idea of liquidity cascades or more sudden periods of volatility like we saw earlier in the year may be more common in the future. Corey's ability to explain these concepts, make connections, deliver possible outcomes, and investment strategy positioning is impressive. And as you will see, he's quick to give credit where credit is due around the formation of many of these ideas, which is a great quality to have. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Corey, thank you for jumping on with us today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, boys. Good to be here. Uh, you wrote a great paper, a new paper that's out, Liquidity Cascades, a Coordinated Risk of Uncoordinated Market Participants. And we'll spend the majority of the discussion today talking about that. But first, I wanted to open up the conversation with a little motivation, inspiration, and hopefully a little fun. Um, you did the March for the Fallen two weekends ago. Um, and, uh, you did it with a 75 pound pack on your back, which is truly amazing. Um, and so how are you feeling? Well, I like that you said started off with fun because that there's nothing fun about doing that. Um, as you well know, uh, I, am feeling okay. I will say it was a little harder this year, not having you there as my rabbit to try to chase down. I noticed you put down an unbelievable pace again. So uh, congratulations on getting that done. But it's it's always such a, a humbling event. And that's the point for me. It's um, the whole March for the Fallen is ultimately a day about uh, partially just embracing some pain and, and the privilege you find in pain. So, you know, you don't want to push yourself so hard that you ultimately end up injured. But you do want to find that point of discomfort and, and live in it a little and just appreciate the opportunity to live in it. Yeah, well said. I think for people that don't know, the March for the Fallen is a honorary event where uh, people go out. It usually happens at an Army National Guard base in Pennsylvania, but um, both military and civilians go out and march either 14 or 28 miles some do it without a rucksack. Corey did it with a 75 pound rucksack. I did it with a 35 pound rucksack. This year was virtual, but it's just a great event and a good way to honor um, those men and women that have served our country and, and given their life. So, and, and huge shout out to Wes Gray for organizing that and getting all of us participating. The ringleader for sure. Um, yeah, and I also thought I wanted to, before we get into the details on the paper, I wanted to try to, let's see if this works. I'm gonna try to uh, share my screen here and bring this up and I wanna see um sort of how you react to this it's one of my favorite tweets in the past probably month um i really hope it's not my a tweet from me uh, you reached you 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 retweeted it okay let's see if i can get this you guys see my screen oh no babe do you ever get jealous that i work with models all day Financial models. 
Babe, do you ever get jealous that I work with models all day? I do. I do love it. I actually had what's really funny is is my my wife works with a lot of um, people who who are Gen Z, and uh, they actually sent that to her. And one of the, one of the young women saw that and knows that I have a podcast called Flirting with Models and sent it to her. She passed it all along, and I was like, "It's, I mean, same joke. It's, it's really, it's a bad joke." But I'm, I'm glad. I always wondered if when it. people find your podcast on iTunes, if sometimes they download it and realize they're getting very different content than what they expected to get. Well, I will say at least the the description on iTunes is pretty clear. Uh, when you know how you can tell when people come to your website, people search for certain terms. I can definitely tell there's some very disappointed people who end up on my website, which which has the flirting with models banner as well. But it's been very funny. I mean, I've used that name for probably the better part of a decade now for different business stuff. And I always thought it was just sort of a funny name. And I didn't ever really meant anything by it. it was clearly about financial models and mathematical models. And it really wasn't until this year, I actually got some pushback, some serious pushback from folks. There were some institutions who actually said they would not be on the podcast because of the podcast name. So tells you something a little bit about the culture. And I said, look, I'm not saying who I'm flirting with or what I'm flirting with. That's up for you to decide. But uh, I guess that's just where we are today, unfortunately. I guess so. Well, maybe we'll have to cut that out, but I doubt it. <laughs> All right. So let's, uh, let's dive into it here. I'm going to try to uh, ask this first question here. So I mean, obviously, just to set the stage and kind of the backdrop, there's a bunch of trends that have kind of gone on in the market, particularly over the last decade or so. And it seems like in your paper, this liquidity cascades paper, there's really three main things that have changed in the market um, that you tried to tie together. The first is that the, the Federal Reserve policy and the unprecedented Federal Reserve action since 08. Um, the second is the rise of passive investing, which, as we know, has become a lot more popular. And the third is this increased use of options and derivatives. And so you sort of bring this all together in your paper with that initial figure. I think it's figure one. And we'll put a link. We'll put a, a we'll show this in the podcast. But you call it the market incentive loop. And so I was wondering if you could just kind of at a high level start working your way through that, because that'll help us kind of peel back the onion and get into these things in a little bit more detail. Absolutely. And, and maybe to set a little context at the table a bit. A lot of this research was inspired by March 2020 and a lot of the questions I was getting from advisor clients of mine who were simply saying markets continue to just seem to be so weird, so disconnected from reality. Is there something there? And so for me, when I, I being a quant, there wasn't evidence before that I could really identify that markets were truly statistically different because a lot of what quants are looking for, right, is that depth of evidence, evidence occurring over time to try to find that difference. And when I started to sort of survey a lot of the narratives that were out there, it tended to be more of a breadth of evidence, a lot of coincidental information occurring at the same time. And it's a very different way of viewing the world. But really, to your point, there were three main narratives. It was this idea of a, you know, depending on the language you want to use, a Fed supported or Fed manipulated market that the Fed had ultimately moved and central banks around the world had ultimately moved from um, a referee to a key player within the market and their actions are actually having uh, knock-on effects in the way investors are behaving. The second to your point is about the rise of passive, which has both sort of macro and micro impacts, uh, depending on how we wanna go into it. And that one really, I gotta give a ton of credit to Mike Green at Logica, who has really been on the vanguard, no pun intended there, of that sort of argument about passive. And then again, this idea of 
of um, the role of derivatives hedging, structured products, the growth of the options market. And again, guys like uh, Chris Cole, uh, Vanir Bansali, Ben Eifert, Jem Karzan have really been, you know, advocating these these ideas. So um, I really want to stress this is these are not core new narratives that I've developed. Um, these are just things that are we're all out there. And so what was really interesting to me about doing this research is that a lot of times the parties who are proponents of one particular narrative had very high conviction in that idea. And again, a lot of the evidence for those ideas was very circumstantial. What was really important to me as I started to piece this all together was that even if our conviction in any of these individual ideas isn't particularly strong, all of these ideas in conjunction seem to put the same pressure on the market. So the way the loop sort of worked, to go back to your original question after my three-mile tangent there, is that it sort of, it doesn't really have a beginning or an end. It arguably sort of gets accelerated when the Fed steps into the market and through their policy, as well as just their general narrative, serves to explicitly suppress interest rates as well as suppress volatility, uh, again, through that sort of narrative economics uh, avenue. By suppressing interest rates, they have uh, the implied action is that investors have to move up the risk curve to hit their returns. Then the question becomes, well, how do they ultimately make that investment decision? Well, in a market where the risk-free rate is lowered, things like fees all of a sudden become more important. And so there's going to potentially be a move to passive for regulatory and fee pressures and some performance chasing that's going on. And that move to passive can ultimately create potential distortions, which we can get into. Um, they also are going to start piling into what I would call volatility contingent trades. So these are going to be trades where they're trying to sort of have their cake and eat it too, where they want to buy equities, but do so in a risk managed way. All of this sort of keeps pushing investors into a corner, sort of the left tail. Um, that ultimately isn't a problem until there's an exogenous shock, something like the Corona crisis, where suddenly there's a large force to unwind. At the same time, a lot of liquidity disappears from the market because high-frequency traders become capital constrained. While that occurs, all of these volatility contingent strategies become liquidity takers. And when there's no liquidity there, that helps drive up volatility. That helps put market pressure uh, in a negative direction. And unless the Fed steps in or there's some other sort of release valve, it just sort of becomes a pro-cyclical pain point. Um, ultimately, the Fed did step in in March 2020 in a very big way. Uh, and arguably has sort of kicked the cycle off anew in, into the next couple of years. So that is sort of the general idea that none of these ideas are, are independent. They all sort of work in concert to create a more unstable market than we've really seen in the past. Before we get into more details about the conclusions, I wanted to ask you a few background things on the paper just to set the stage for it. And the first is this idea you touched on, which is the idea that as the Federal Reserve suppresses interest rates, investors have to move up the risk curve. And you know, when I talk to individual investors, they seem to not follow that concept all that well about why the Fed suppressing rates would move people up into riskier investments. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So I think it should be noted that this is actually explicitly acknowledged by the Fed, at least as it relates to the yield curve, and it's actually called their recruitment channel. And the basic idea here as it uh, relates to treasuries is that as you lower the front end rates, if investors have to hit a particular yield target, they're going to actually have to move out along the yield curve to further dated tenors to actually achieve that yield. Now, the question is, why do investors have to achieve a certain yield? Why can't you just say, well, rates are lower. I expect my total return to have come down if I expect 
say, my equity risk premium to float on that risk-free rate, and I just need to save more. And that might be an answer, but the reality is there's a lot of investors out there who have what I would call real dollar liabilities. And these are things like uh, insurance companies, endowments, pensions, even individuals who are saving for retirement, they have ultimately at a certain point have a real dollar spend that they want to hit. And so as returns come down, unless you can make up that return with more savings, which seems to be something we're not willing to do here in this country, it ultimately incentivizes investors to keep taking riskier and riskier and riskier allocations uh, in an effort to hit those return goals so they can meet those future liabilities. Uh, there's a nice picture in the piece that I took from the Wall Street Journal that I think really summarizes this idea that says, in, in 1995, to hit a 7.5% return target, you could have done it with a 100% fixed income portfolio. By 2005, that was a 50% equity, 50% fixed income portfolio. By 2015, that was 80% equity or equity-like strategies, including private equity, uh, with very little fixed income in the portfolio. And I think that just highlights, again, if you're some sort of institution or investor that needs that 7.5% return target for those future liabilities, you have ultimately been forced to take riskier and riskier investments. Well, by the way, in your paper, I think that you showed, sorry, Jack, I think that you showed that you were like three standard deviations higher in terms of risk with that, you know, newer sort of mix of asset classes than you were back in whenever it was 95. Well, exactly. I think I think the volatility, and again, not that volatility is the end-all, be-all measure of risk, but the volatility dramatically went up, obviously going from something like just pure fixed income to an all-equity portfolio. I think the volatility went up from around 7% to 17% in the, in, from 1995 to 2015 with that target return portfolio. Another concept you introduced in the paper is this idea of the moneyness of financial markets. And I found that really interesting and it has significant implications in terms of policy going forward. So I was wondering if you could talk about what that is and, and maybe what some of those implications are. Yeah, so this was a really interesting idea that I ultimately stumbled upon in a book called The Rise of Carry. Uh, I certainly recommend people check that out. It's it's a different narrative and a different way in which um, a lot of these same sort of liquidity cascade dynamics could actually come about. But the question I was trying to ask was ultimately, can the Fed ever remove itself from the market, right? If the Fed seems to have gone from this role of referee to active player, and that is a fundamental problem, can the Fed just rip itself out of the market? And I think one of the interesting ideas of this increased moneyness is as people uh, need to hit this higher rate of return, they're starting to use the market as their vehicle of savings. So no longer are they keeping money aside in a bank account necessarily, more and more their paycheck is going into those 401k type structures to ultimately uh, be their vehicle of savings over the long run because they're just not getting a return anywhere else which is, is this idea of the moneyness of the market, that you basically turned the market into a financial savings vehicle. And the ultimate problem there is that that savings vehicle is now a lot more volatile than, again, if someone just had their money uh, in a bank account yielding 5%. And so the market is ultimately now getting more and more tied to the real economy through sort of this reflexive channel that if investors are putting more money in the market to save and the market drops 20 or 30%, investors are now going to feel less secure, feel less wealthy, likely pull back on their spending, 
right, and have real knock-on implications into uh, the actual growth of the economy. And so I think it becomes harder and harder for the Fed to extricate itself from what they're doing today, uh, at least in the short term. And then the last concept I want to ask you about before we get into more of the conclusions is this whole idea of di divergent and convergent strategies. Um, you know, you, that, that's a huge central part of the paper. And, you know, it actually made me feel good as a value investor, because although we've been trailing the market, at least we're running a convergent strategy that might be uh, helping things. But could you talk about what those two things mean and, and sort of what that means for the market? Yeah, so there's all sorts of ways in which you can categorize investment strategies. I think divergent and convergent is one um, that really helps encapsulate these two very different approaches. The basic idea of a convergent strategy is that there is some uh, target price level or target value around which you expect uh, your investments to converge. So for example, like value investing, you think there's some intrinsic measure of value and you are buying things that are below that intrinsic measure, expecting them to converge up and selling things that are above that intrinsic value, expecting them to converge down. And what's important there is more and more money piles into a convergent strategy. It has a stabilizing effect. Those things that are undervalued get pushed up to fair value faster. Things that are overvalued get pushed down to fair value faster. Contrast that with a divergent strategy. A divergent strategy doesn't tend to be anchored to anything in particular. Um, it's, it's a divergent strategy. A good example would be something like momentum. The idea that relative winners tend to keep on winning and relative losers tend to keep on losing. So as money piles into a divergent strategy like momentum, what happens is money piles into winners and actually risks creating a self-fulfilling prophecy, driving them potentially further and further and further up. Similarly, short selling or pulling money from losers has the same effect of sending losers further and further, further down, um, potentially further away from their intrinsic fair value, because that's not really a concept that, that often comes into play with divergent strategies. And so these divergent strategies can spiral way out, particularly when you have a situation where there's strong flows, um, because again, they're really not tied to any core concept of valuation. It's often very purely about price and what price has recently done. And so they're very two different, they're two core uh, ideas that often sort of as categories explain almost every strategy in the market. But what's important to consider is what happens when those ideas get crowded, that a convergent strategy when it's crowded creates a great deal of stabilization and a divergent strategy when it gets crowded becomes very unstable. So that might play into the next question, which is this idea about the rise of passive investing, which is really part two of your paper. But as you pointed out in you know the mid 90s, passive was about 10% of the overall AUM in the market. Now it's probably 45 to 50%. And the trend like looks like it's gonna continue as investors look for the lowest cost stuff out there. So is that, um, I mean, can you just maybe talk a little bit about that? And is that an example of this convergent and divergent type of idea that you're talking about? I'm not looking for you to make a market call, but more just flushing out the, the rise of passive and how it relates here to the overall uh, framework that you've yeah, absolutely. And um, before I go into this again, I really want to stress that a lot of these ideas uh, have been really put forward by Michael Green at Logica. I would highly encourage everyone to hit pause on me 
go find some of his podcasts. He's, he's brilliant. Um, he spent a lot more time thinking about this stuff than me. But as I sort of dove into the passive argument, a lot of the literature that's out there really hits on sort of three ideas, um, two of which are at the macro level and one of which is micro. So I really want to be very, very specific here when I'm talking about passive and, and the language I use. So I'm going to say, when I say active, what I mean by active is true discretionary active management. When someone is buying or selling individual securities for whatever reason they want, but not necessarily in a systematic way. It's, it's a discretionary manager. I'm then going to talk about indexed, and that's going to be things like smart beta strategies, where they do arguably take an active bet that is different than a truly passive market, uh, but do so in a defined systematic manner that does not change, maybe rebalances twice a year. Um, that is going to be an index strategy. And then finally, there's passive, which is sort of your, uh, you know, full market cap, market cap weighted type strategy. Ideally, it's the full spectrum, but close enough is the S&P 500, Russell 1000, that sort of thing. Now, again, there's two sort of core ideas here, the macro and the micro. From the macro perspective, a lot of the evidence seemed to suggest two effects. The first is the risk of the growing risk of benchmarking, which um, I didn't talk about as much in the paper, but actually does get a lot of play in the literature, which argues that as these passive uh, benchmarks continue to uh, rise in popularity and serve as a natural benchmark for active managers, what it ultimately does is it invites the potential risk of uh, performance chasing so that investors are gonna rotate among active managers who have recently outperformed the benchmark, selling those ma active managers that have recently underperformed the benchmark. And what this, this risks is a divergent momentum trade. So going back to that idea that momentum is divergent, if you are constantly selling out of losing managers, it means that, well, for them to have been losing, their stocks must have been underperforming the market. Now you're putting further pressure on those stocks, selling out of them, and then trying to buy into the winning managers who, again, were recent outperformers, had been beating the benchmark, and that flow can actually drive them further out. So benchmarking and passive as a whole, even not talking about the flight to passive, but just the existence and growth of these as benchmarks can actually invite a rotation within active that can drive to strong divergent trades that can potentially, at an extreme, destabilize how these securities are all priced relative to each other. Because if everyone's sort of chasing the recent winners, it keeps pushing those winners up and up and up. The second um, thesis, and this one is really the one that Mike Green has been proposing, is this idea of flow from active into passive. And I think what's really core to this idea is that passive on its own doesn't really represent a bet. But when I buy a passive strategy, I'm buying stocks in a certain weight, and those weights are allowed to float in any way they want um, relative to performance, to their, their market cap as the market cap changes with respect to price. So if I buy, put in a dollar today and say, Jack, you put in a dollar tomorrow, your dollar is going to buy different weights than I bought. Now, my weights have drifted to be equal to your weights. But the flow, the dollar pressure that you put in buying those securities is actually going to put more pressure on those stocks that had recently gone up and less pressure on those stocks that had recently gone down. And so the idea is that in moving from active to passive, whether this is from regulatory pressure, fee pressure, demographic pressure, ultimately puts people into 
a structure that has more and more of a divergent trade aspect that as flow comes into passive over time, uh, it is increasingly buying recent winners, decreasingly, uh, increasingly selling or, or decreasingly buying recent losers. Um, and if that gets out of control as a, as a total part of the market, uh, it could lead to sort of a runaway performance and things like your mega cap growth names about how this relates to Sharpe's work. So in theory, based on that, active as a whole should equal passive as a whole, and they both should equal the market. So in theory, you would think that if money is moving from active managers to passive managers, it might not have an impact. But you, I was listening to your podcast with Adam Butler, and you gave a great explanation as to why that might not be true. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so so Sharpe's arithmetic, I think, is a, a, always a great starting point, right? Which basically says that passive managers... Uh, or passive holders, their average weight is going to be equal to the dollar average weight of all active managers. So all those active bets, for every value investor, there's got to be a growth investor with an offsetting bet, right? Because every security is held by someone. So the question is, well, how can, like, say, value investors capitulate and buy passive? For that to necessarily happen, they have to sell their stocks to someone, and we already know that passive is buying in a, in a certain weight, so it can't be passive investors. It's got to be other active investors. And the basic idea here is that while that is certainly true, the question to ultimately ask is, is not one about sort of the instantaneous price of what, that a stock has, but what happens when there's a lot of a, a big change in supply and demand pressure. So the simple example I sort of chatted about with Adam was this idea of just, let's say there's just three of us, right? So uh, Jack, you're passive. Justin, you're a growth investor and I'm a value investor. And, and we're the only three investors in the market. And I have just decided I have ultimately had enough. I don't wanna be a value investor anymore. I just wanna go passive. And I go to try to unwind my stocks. Jack, you're not going to buy them because they're not in market cap weight. And Justin, you're not going to buy them because they're not the growth stocks you want. So what do I have to do? Well, I have to keep basically driving up the price, right? I say, Justin, will you buy my stock A for, for $50? You go, nope. Okay, 51, 52, 53. And I keep driving up that price of the growth stocks. Similarly, I keep driving down the price of my value stocks within my portfolio until I get to the point that you say, yeah, I'll take that trade. Now in the extreme, that trade is just gonna be whatever weight you had in your portfolio. So I've basically made a market that has effectively pushed passive, now that Justin, you and I hold the exact same weights in our portfolio, has pushed passive all the way to what the growth investor held. And in doing so, by trying to unwind my trade as the value investor, I've created flow pressure that's moved the market more towards growth. And so, Again, very extreme outside example, but the ultimate idea is if more value investors are capitulating on their trade than growth investors, the only way they can really incentivize growth investors to end up buying those stocks is by continually driving up the price that they're willing to basically uh, sell their growth stocks at and drive down the price that they're willing to, excuse me, price they're willing to buy back the growth stocks and sell down the price they're trying to sell for the value stocks um, and ultimately push passive more towards growth. You talk about value investors capitulating, and this the conclusions of this seem to be very bad conclusions for what I would call maybe fundamental-based investors, if you look at value particularly, but maybe quality as well. I'm wondering, what do you think about going forward the outlook for factors like that is in a world dominated by this? Well, you know, what's really interesting to me is there's been some uh, really interesting research that got brought up 
after I publish this paper, uh, that's one of the wonderful things about publishing research. If you're out there, people will start sending you feedback, whether you ask for it or not. 99% of the feedback I get is really helpful. And there was some recent research that I got uh, sent to me and the paper was by a, a gentleman uh, whose name, first name, I'm not going to try to pronounce, but uh, Lee out of University of Utah. And the paper was called What Drives the Size and Value Factors? And it was ultimately looking at this idea of flow. And what was really fascinating was even ignoring this whole argument about passive um, and a move from active to passive, it found that approximately 50% of factor variance can be tied to flow, rotation within mutual funds in buying and selling value versus growth, large versus small. And so I don't think this is a new phenomenon. I just think potentially the rise of indexed products uh, as well as a migration to passive has enabled sort of the package selling of these different styles in, in an easier capacity. Certainly they've been smart beta has had a huge adoption over the last decade. The question ultimately uh, that you propose is, well, right, does this mean that if, if you have this capitulation, more and more people are moving to passive, right? The older generations who tend to hold active are selling, no longer reinvesting their dividends. Younger generations are buying pre-packaged ETF products that are all sort of passively weighted. Does this mean sort of the death of active investing? And again, I think we can take it to an extreme and say, well, at, you know, if some stock gets so beaten down at a certain point, it's dividend yield, it's buyback yield, all that sort of stuff is going to be outsized above and beyond perhaps the return you would need um, to justify buying it. Right. So or merger activity alone uh, could could justify buying it that you think it's a buyout opportunity, that sort of thing. Um, so I don't think value investing is dead. I, I do think what we have to be aware of in these markets is a lot more is happening at the cross-sectional pricing perspective um, than maybe we were aware of 10 or 15 years ago, that a lot more of the day-to-day -day variance, what's driving stocks up and down, does seem to be very flow-driven, um, both including right the cross-sectional rotation that from different active managers, uh, as well as I know we'll talk a little bit about options trading and that sort of stuff. So I think my lesson here, and again, I, I don't like to talk about my particular conviction in these ideas, but I think my lesson for any individual uh, who's buying securities and trying to actively price is recognize um, that there's going to be a lot of variation that about the pricing of your security that has nothing to do with a fundamental view of your security. And I, I think that can actually represent opportunities to a certain degree if you're patient. Um, but if you're a, a long-term investor who's still trying to buy quality companies, I don't think this discounts that. Uh, but I do think in the short term, it could lead to some some pain that you just have to put up with. Talking about flows to value, one of the most interesting things I, I found in the paper is this whole idea of basket trades. Because as a value investor, I tend to think, all right, if money starts flowing into value, well, that's going to be convergent. You know, that's sort of the opposite of what we're talking about here. But you sort of showed because of the way ETFs work with baskets, that's not necessarily the, tr the truth. You know, the money is not necessarily going to flow into the cheapest stocks. Can you talk about that a little bit in the impact of basket trades? So this is this is one of those ideas that uh, going into this paper, I was dead set and I would have said to you, with no exception, every smart beta product is active, right? To me, passive is you are market cap weighted. Um, that's the end of it. Yeah, I'll give the S&P 500 a pass here that, that even though there's a committee and some quality screens, it's more or less passive. Um, and everything else is, is active. And after this paper, I walked away saying, no, there's a definite distinction between active and indexed. 
So what is that distinction? Well, to me, that distinction exists in what happens when you give a dollar to that manager. So I'll use you guys as examples. Um, so Jack, let's say you are your traditional discretionary mutual fund manager. You're looking to try to buy individual companies. I give you a dollar. I invest in your fund. You wake up in the morning, you got a dollar in your fund. You look at your cash report and you say, okay, let me go look out at my buy list. Which of the stocks in, in my portfolio are perhaps more undervalued than they should be? Is there anything on my list I want to start buying? And you put that dollar to work in an individual security. And in theory, that flow pressure can drive the price of the stock up. Um, Justin, in, in contrast, uh, I am going to give you a dollar and you manage an indexed value ETF. And what, what's going to happen is you're really actually not going to be involved. I'm going to go to the market and try to buy your ETF. Either I'm going to buy it from, from someone else, or let's say the trade is big enough. A market maker is going to step in and say, okay, Corey wants to buy a dollar worth of this product. I'm going to go out and collect all the underlying stocks in the basket, according to the weights. Uh, I'm going to go deliver that basket, uh, get a get a share of the ETF back, and then go deliver it to Corey. And those are basically the mechanisms. And, and that market maker doesn't care about the value of any of those stocks. It knows the price of everything, but the value of nothing. All they care about is executing that trade in as efficient a manner as possible. Now, again, individually, it doesn't really matter, in my opinion, too much what, what I do at one point. But when you think about flow over time, so again, Jack, every time you get a dollar, you're looking at your portfolio. That's not happening at the ETF level. With the ETF, they are rebalancing once, maybe twice a year. Most of the old products are once, like your Russell 1000 value. Most of your new smart beta products are twice at the extreme four times. But between those rebalances, they're allowed to drift entirely with performance. So if I put a dollar in today, and then one of you puts a dollar in tomorrow into the same value fund, the weights at which you're buying and putting that purchasing pressure is actually more on the securities that have recently done well. So every single indexed ETF out there from sort of a micro pressure perspective, as the money is put to work and as flow comes into uh, the ETF is again representing a little bit of a divergent trade. And I think that is a very different market structure than existed 15 years ago when we were really just talking about mutual funds. With all this, with all this flows based you know, activity going on, it, it would seem to me, and I think you've mentioned this on Twitter a while back, it would seem to me there, there should be a factor here. There should be some factor in terms of the, you know, the float adjusted market cap relative to the liquidity where although the S&P 500 benefits from this, it seems like you could do an even better job of using those factors to create an ETF or something. Nobody's done it, so it's probably much harder than I think, but what, what do you think about that idea? So I, I, that was my first pushback when I heard these ideas was, well, why can't I just go out there and create a liquidity factor, right? Because if you're telling me flows are driving everything, shouldn't it be the least liquid stocks that are actually getting bumped around the most? And I think it's, it's unfortunately harder than that. And I haven't come to a good example because it's not just about liquidity. Liquidity matters, but what also matters is the total dollar amount going in, right? When I try to buy the S&P 500 today with a dollar, five cents of that is going towards Google. And maybe half a penny is going towards Under Armour. So even though Under Armour may be less liquid, 
um, the amount of money going towards it is so much less that even Google can be more liquid, but there's more pressure trying to buy it uh, that ultimately drives it up. There was another paper that recently came out, and I'm going to blank on the name, uh, that was really, really uh, fascinating that talked about actually the idea of money moving from bonds to, to stocks. And this is a, another Michael Green idea where he was talking about, again, your average active manager holds about 2 3%, 4% in cash to deal with redemptions. On average, the average ETF holds maybe 10 basis points. So even just from a migration from mutual funds to active ETFs, you get a big reduction of cash on the sidelines, more money trying to purchase the market. And that what you can actually see from that flow is it actually drives up uh, the valuation of the market as a whole. I think the numbers they said from a market inelasticity perspective was every dollar that tries to buy the market, it actually drives the market up $5. But in doing so, again, it, it disproportionately buys the larger names. So those names actually go up more because as you're buying, because there's, there's that multiple, right? So I, again, that one to five multiple, if I'm putting one of my dollars into the market and it's buying five cents of Apple, what's well, going to drive it up 25 cents versus half a penny into Under Armour and only drives it up two and a half pennies. So there's there's some really interesting flow-based evidence out there that makes it just, it's not quite as simple to only look at liquidity because you need to really scale it for these ideas of how much money is going into those names versus their liquidity. I was so smart a couple of years ago when I tried to put this together and I put a model, you know, with the, the market cap weight relative to the liquidity and I ran it all the way through. I used daily dollar volume as the liquidity and the end result was the stock I should be buying the most in the S&P 500 is Berkshire Hathaway. And I was like, well, obviously yeah. my model is, is completely wrong and I should go in a different direction. Well, you know, this, what, what is so hard, and again, I, I've, I've, I think I've vocalized this a number of times, is this was the most uncomfortable piece of research I've ever done because so much of the evidence is circumstantial. And if you do believe it's a new regime, by definition, there's no depth of evidence to look at. You can't look at this over history and really play this out. Because even though there has been a sort of linear increase in, in passive over time, let's say, or index strategies over time, um, you know, that doesn't that doesn't necessarily model that there can be nonlinear impacts that going from 10 to 15 percent passive is very different potentially than going from 35 to 40 percent passive. So if you say these effects have maybe only been around and growing for the last two or three years, we can really only speculate, in my opinion, from a model based perspective and try to play out sort of in these um, sandboxes that we can design. Okay, this is how we think the market works, but it's largely just a large breadth of, of circumstantial evidence that you have to believe in if, to have these ideas sort of play out versus that traditional quant equity quant-based view of, hey, values worked for a hundred years. The last, um, I think, sort of part of your uh, uh, framework here is this idea around liquidity and hedging. And, you know, this is, I think, one of those concepts that, um, it's tough for a lot of investors to sort of wrap their arms around. It's sort of deep in market structure. Um, so, you know, options just in general aren't used by a lot of investors. So it's, you know, it's kind of out there. But, you know, this is an important piece, I think, to the overall sort of theory. So do you just want to talk about the role of dealers here in the market and the sort of the impact that hedging can have and, you know, how it fits into this discussion? Yeah, so I think... What's really important to understand when we're talking about the options market is, is who's actually participating, right? So when I go out and I want to say buy or sell a call option, who is ultimately on the other side of that trade, 
right? When we say in the equity market, we generally assume it's another investor and maybe a, a market maker facilitates the trade and warehouses the risk for a little bit, but we ultimately expect it's another investor on the, on the other side there. In the options market, the general assumption is there's actually what's called an options dealer. And they're sort of serving as a market maker that I go out and I want to buy an individual contract and they're going to facilitate that trade. But what's very different here is they don't actually want to take the other side of that trade, right? So let's say I want to generate some income. So I'm going to sell a call option on the S&P 500. The dealer is going to be on the other side of that trade. They're going to be long a call option, right? And all they're trying to do is capture that bid ask spread, but they're now long the call option and that's what's sitting on their books. And so now they're directionally sensitive to what happens in the market. As the market goes up, that call option becomes worth more. And as the market goes down, that call option is worth less. And again, they don't want any directional sensitivity. And so what they're going to do is they're going to try to hedge it out. What's really, really, really important here is to realize that options as derivatives are non-linear instruments. So what I mean by that is that the dealer can't just say, okay, this option has a, a beta to equities of 0.5. Let me sell, you know, some, some S and P 500 and we're done. As the market moves around, the dealer needs to change their hedge. And that is the crucially important here. The hedging that the dealers have to do is dynamic. So in the example where I sold a call and the dealer's along a call, as the market keeps going up, the dealer actually has to keep shorting and shorting and shorting and shorting. And as the market keeps going down, they're buying back and buying back and buying back. Um, and so that's a really crucial aspect of what's going on in theory at both sort of macro level. So we're seeing big, big trends in the institutions and covered call selling, but also arguably what we've seen over the last couple of months at the individual security level, especially within the tech names, um, some forced hedging has arguably been driving up a lot of these tech names from, uh, you really wouldn't believe it, it when you say it, but it's, it's people who are buying short dated options on Robinhood and Wall Street bets and speculating in the market is actually seems to, again, having these flow based knock on ramifications for the rest of the investors. Yeah, that was probably the best example for me that ha helped me to learn this whole thing is when there was a chart on Twitter that listed basically if, if one of these Robinhood traders buys a call option, like a short dated call option on something like Apple. And as Apple keeps going up, all the different things, the all the times the dealer has to keep buying all the way up. Can, can you just explain that a little bit about how that process works behind the scenes? Yeah, so this was a great, um, a great tweet thread by Ben Eifert, who I highly recommend people. Again, Google Ben. He's been on a couple different podcasts talking about these ideas. He's incredibly uh, transparent with these concepts. Uh, ben, don't get mad at me if I, if I butcher this, um, but he's, he's a great person to follow. And his tweet basically was, look, when someone buys a short dated call option on, I think Amazon was his example. Let's say we take the 1500 bucks, 1600 bucks, the government check decided to speculate it all on, on short dated Amazon stock. What happens when I buy that call is the dealer now sells it to me, right? Um, and they need to hedge that exposure, right? So they're, they're directionally, um, when the market goes up, they're, they're losing money. When the market goes down, they're making money. To hedge that, they need to basically buy stock. So they initially go out and they buy some stock. And let's say there's so many investors that are start doing this short dated option purchasing that they actually get all these dealers to buy securities. Now, what's important here is, um, you know, Amazon's an expensive stock. And so when I buy a call option for $1,500, uh, you know, I am 
um, forcing these dealers to potentially to buy, call it uh, 0.2 shares to hedge. That in and of itself can drive the price up, but let's just say there's good Amazon news and now all of a sudden the price of Amazon goes up. Well, these dealers now have to buy more, right? So maybe instead of 0.2 shares, they now have to buy 0.5 shares uh, for every contract they've sold. And so again, all they're trying to do is remain neutral to the movement of the stock, but because that option has value that moves against the stock, they need to keep buying the underlying to hedge their exposure. And again, all that purchasing can actually potentially drive the stock. Um, there could be in more good news and now they have to, you know, it, it, the price keeps going up and they have to buy 0.75 shares. And so at the end of the day, I think the, the example Ben gave was in, in under the right circumstance, someone's $1,500 gamble could turn into a dealer buying $250,000 worth of Amazon stock within a week. And in chatting with Ben, I, I, he gave me the example that I think he calculated in August, there were some days that the hedging pressures represented 25% of the daily volume of Apple, right? And that is pure hedging pressure coming from these small contract speculative short-term bets that are being made um, by just individual participants in the market that really didn't exist four or five years ago. Yeah, the last part I wanted to talk about in this whole functioning of markets was the the role of high frequency traders because this this is also something you talked about a lot. And you know, we used to run an ETF and, and we had a lead market maker and that market maker had certain rules in terms of they had to be in the market and they had to be the best bidder ask at certain times. And it seems like more volume is being taken up by high frequency traders and they don't have to play by those rules. And they also have some liquidity problems as well. You mentioned the paper. Can you talk a little bit about high frequency traders and the role they play in this whole thing? Yeah. So when I started doing this research, that was actually sort of the third pillar of the narrative. The, the hedging aspect actually didn't, wasn't even part of what I was looking at initially. It was really just about this idea that high frequency traders seem to be a very large part of daily volume. They have no proactive requirement to be in the markets, as you point out. Uh, they actually do in other countries, but they don't in the US. And there's just this general feeling that when markets start to misbehave, they just completely pull their liquidity, that they're fair weather liquidity providers. And so that actually causes the market to sort of believe there's more liquidity than there truly is. Uh, and it's And people think of them somewhat nefariously. I think after doing more research, um, there is a certain aspect of, of course, they're going to pull some liquidity. They're in a business. This, this is not a charity. And until they're proactively required to be a certain amount of market volume, they're going to do what's best to protect themselves. But I think there's another really big aspect here to recognize, which is a lot of these high frequency traders run with a tremendous amount of leverage. Right, they run very high sharp ratio strategies, um, and they don't have enough capital to provide all the liquidity. So they're borrowing a tremendous amount of capital to provide that liquidity. The collateral that's being posted for that capital that they're borrowing is very often securities. And so what happens is, as the market gets more volatile, uh, and those securities get more volatile, uh, they very often have to post more margin or the amount of leverage they can use goes down. So it's not that they're necessarily trying to pull liquidity. It's just a function of the fact that they are highly levered market participants. Their leverage is based upon the collateral that they're offering and the collateral has become more volatile. And I think evidence of this could be seen actually in March, this sort of went under the radar for most people, but Virtu Financial, who's one of the 
biggest high frequency traders out there, large market maker, actually was trying to raise something like $450 million in, I think it was March 20th, the note went out that they were trying to raise this money just so they could provide more liquidity. That it wasn't that they didn't want to, they were just inherently capital constrained from providing more liquidity. And so I think we have this uh, idea of sort of nefarious high frequency traders being a leech on markets that um, pull liquidity. I think the reality is, yes, there's an aspect of that. They're going to protect their business, but there is an aspect where they are, again, just another element of this pro-cyclical cycle that when markets get stressed, they are forced by design, unfortunately, to act in a way that potentially puts more stress on the markets. That makes sense. Um, one of the things we wanted to try to sort of get at here as we get to close to wrapping it up is, you know, when investors listen to this and, you know, read your paper, the question may be, you know, how should they construct or potentially even change their investment strategy? And obviously we're not going to give investment advice to anyone. That's not what this is about, but many of our listeners are individual investors and advisors. Um, and what we wanted to try to sort of get at here is, you know, for your average investor who has a long-term time horizon, who's maybe in a 60-40 sort of uh, investment allocation, stocks and bonds, you know, what sort of findings from this paper do you think would dictate any changes in terms of that allocation that investors should consider or just at least think about in terms of their future investment strategy? Uh, I, this is a conversation I've been having nonstop for the last month, month and a half <clears throat> since we released the paper. And I don't, I wish I had a very simple answer, right? That, that all this research points to the one holy grail answer. But the reality is a lot of it has to do with both the individual investor, as well as your conviction in these individual ideas. And again, I'm, I'm trying to do my best not to sort of express my individual conviction. But if you're an individual investor with a 40 year, 50 year horizon, and you can just sort of not look at the market, and you can just keep saving, I don't know if you really do care. You know, maybe maybe you care if you think that this flight to passive is ultimately going to distort things, or you care if you believe that the Fed has a breaking point, right, that they're going to hit, um, that monetary and fiscal policy could drive the dollar off a cliff and we could have rampant inflation. Like those are those are all things to consider in your asset allocation policy. But again, if you have a 20, 30, 40 year horizon, I'm not sure all the short term volatility is really meaningful to you that you can just sort of, again, rely on your savings. Um, you know, focus on your human capital and let your investment capital sort of play out and just accept that markets are going to be more volatile in the short term. I think the more you believe in these ideas, um, the higher conviction you have, I, I think the natural inclination for people is, okay, how do I profit from this? And I think the conversation I've been trying to have with people is, well, don't focus so much on how can you profit. Ask yourself when you look at your portfolio, how much are you on one side of this trade? Right. So what I see predominantly with investors is that they are very heavily skewed to being on the, the arguably wrong side of this trade, that they tend to have a uh, very heavy, small value focus, and they've embedded a lot of volatility contingent strategies in their portfolio. And so my argument to them is don't unwind all that because all of my research could be 100% wrong. Right. But ask yourself, instead of going from this side of the boat, running all the way to the other, is there a way you can just get yourself to the middle of the boat? Can you try to be thoughtful about pairing momentum and value together, right? As, as our friend Wes Gray so often advocates and, and Cliff Asness has advocated for forever, right? Can, can you try to make sure that all of the trades embedded in your portfolio 
aren't necessarily going to be on the wrong side of all of these ideas. Can you pair them with other ideas that might be on the right side? And so for me, a lot of those ideas, um, you know, again, I think, I think momentum is a great pair to value. You could go large mega cap growth with value just as a hedge um, for people who are really deep value. I think there's some really interesting ideas about creating some convexity, right? So again, expecting that there's going to be more rapid sell-offs as well as melt-up environments. There are some ETFs that have come to market from Simplify that embed um, out-of-the-money call options and out-of-the-money put options. That could be interesting instruments for trying to develop a more resilient equity portfolio. Um, but I think the answer for me, again, is not around what's the one core idea to exploit all this and generate alpha. It's just trying to look from a holistic portfolio composition where are you relative to this regime? And if you're so offsides, is there just a way to bring you back towards neutral? Just in closing, I wanted to ask you about every time I do research, I'm always trying to think about, you know, what is the other side of it? And when I was talking to, uh, I talked, I did an interview with Jim O'Shaughnessy a long time ago, and he's probably the ultimate long-term thinker. And I was talking to him about some of this Fed policy. And, and he was saying, you know, we've seen a lot of things like this before. It always eventually comes to an end. And, and I'm wondering what you think about sort of the short-term versus the long-term nature of all this. I mean, do you think this is stuff that's going to be with us for a really long time? Or do you sort of ascribe to that theory that, you know, like Jim said, that eventually, like everything else, you know, this may go back in a different direction? Yeah, I mean, uh, what is it? The most expensive words in the markets are this time is different, right? I mean, I, like, I, I don't want to be the guy that's running around there pounding their chest saying this time is different, but it does, right? It's always different. I, th I think... Markets are always different. The question is, is it different enough to justify changing the fundamental tenets by which you invest, right? Do I believe that passive has so distorted markets that fundamental company valuation no longer matters? That's a pretty extreme view. Um, but I do think there are places we can look around the globe and say, well, right, the American experience has probably been the exception and not the rule. When you look at something like Japan, as, was Japan really just a petri dish experimentation that will serve as the basis for sort of the um, way the rest of the world will operate as central banks become more and more of an influential buyer in markets, right? I know, I know it's not technically the central bank buying high yield bonds today, but they are in effect more or less doing that. The next time around, are they going to buy equities? And again, can they ever back out from that trade? And, and what does that necessarily lead to? So I, I, far be it for me to go against Jim, um, but I think these are ideas are at least worth discussing, right? I don't want to be sort of the harbinger of doom and say, well, the end game of all this is the Fed breaks the dollar and we should all be buying currency vol to hedge our portfolios and buy some Bitcoin because I have no idea. Um, but I think there are ideas at least worth discussing because markets always change. There's no way anything can always work. Um, also, you have an arbitrage. And so we want to sort of figure out which of the core ideas maybe are in, in, in risk of further short-term pain and, and whether that's relevant to us as investors. And that's, that's sort of where the, the ideas of the paper all sort of came and, and, and uh, ultimately concluded. What's the quote that you have uh, that you always say, risk? Uh, risk can't be destroyed, only transformed. Yes. Yeah. Which ironically, what's really funny to me is I've been using that quote for, I don't even know how long, close to a decade now. 
And it turns out Chris Cole, who uh, someone I mentioned at the beginning uh, of Art of Capital Management, who's been talking about these volatility contingent strategies for the better part of a decade, uses a nearly identical quote, which is risk can't be destroyed, only transmuted or something like that. And I'm like, I would like, you know, it's it's so funny. Someone sent me an email. It's like, well, you just ripped off Chris Cole. I was like, I didn't even know he did that. But I, it's the, the basic idea is, is no matter what trade we make, there's some conviction, some view we're placing. Um, for me, the idea is I almost think of risk like a big ball of Play-Doh. And most investors who have taken that 60-40 value size tilt have put all that Play-Doh in one spot. And that's where all their risk lies. And my argument to them is, you're not going to destroy risk, but does it make more sense to try to sort of think about other strategies you can include in the portfolio so you can almost smash down on that Play-Doh and spread it out? So you don't have as much risk in one particular regime, one particular environment. You've got a little bit more risk everywhere, but that risk isn't really um, large enough in any regime that it, that it could cause permanent impairment. And to me, that is very thoughtful portfolio design. Yeah. No, that's great. And I think, you know, you've done a great job of being able to bottle this up and articulate it. And I hope that this conversation, I, I know it will be certainly helpful to a lot of investors that listen to this as they look at their portfolios and they look at the next 5, 10, 15 years and positioning, whether they want to do anything or not. I think this is interesting stuff and important stuff to think about. So um, we certainly appreciate you um, explaining this and jumping on with us today. If people want to learn more about you and your research and what you're up to, where can they go to find out more? So they can just go to our website, thinknewfound.com. And there's actually going to be a link right at, right at the uh, homepage that'll take you to the Liquidity Cascades white paper. I did an audio version for people who don't feel like reading it. Um, there's also all sorts of supplemental articles that I've tried to link to in other podcasts if you want to take a dive into any of these individual ideas. Uh, and then I spend way too much time on Twitter. You can find me at Hofstein talking about all, all these sorts of things. So that's that's the best way to find me. And um, thank you both for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for doing it. It was great. Thank you, Corey. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.